This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 249 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I am so excited to welcome this week a true legend in the fire service, Chief Billy Goldfeder. So Billy is the man who founded the Firefighter Close Calls and the Secret List, a resource that I'm hoping everyone out there is aware of and certainly using, and basically is putting out the errors that we have made or a department has made or that just went wrong on a scene with the hope that we can learn from them and not make the same mistake ourselves. So we really explore that, uh, not hiding our own errors and sharing them with other departments. We talk about firefighter fitness, cancer, mental health, a host of other topics. So a fantastic conversation. Before we get to that interview, as I say, every single episode, please take a moment and go to your podcast app, subscribe to this show, rate the show. The five-star rating definitely makes us more visible for people looking for this project. Leave feedback. I love reading your feedback if you have a moment to write something. And then most importantly, share. That could be word of mouth, department email, social media. But think about all these men and women that give their time to tell their story, how valuable that information is to so many people around the globe. And you guys are the key to help me get it to them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chief Billy Goldfeder. Enjoy. Chief, I want to start by saying thank you so much. I know we've had some scheduling issues, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast. Absolutely. It's just uh, time is such a challenge these days, no matter who you are. Uh, but I'm glad we were able to get together for this conversation. 
Me too. All right. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm actually home uh, and uh, ready to jump out the door at the cry of fire. <laughs> if, that happens to, if that happens to happen today, I was just talking to our chief about uh, how fire can be a morale booster, but also obviously is a problem to someone else. So we certainly don't want to encourage that. But the busier we are, the better we like it. That's how firefighters are. Absolutely. Like I said, we don't want anyone to get hurt, but if they do, we want to be there. Yeah, exactly. That's right. All right. So when you say home, which which uh, city and state are you in? Oh, yeah. So I, I, I work and live in uh, Loveland, Ohio. I actually love live in an area just outside of there called Mason. That's uh, southwest Ohio. We're a suburb of Cincinnati and um, Deputy Fire Chief at the Loveland Sims Fire Department. I've been here for just about 20 years. And uh, this is my last stop as far as I'm concerned. I'm here for, for good. And uh, at 64 years old, we'll, we'll figure out exactly when's the right time to stop. Absolutely. Well, I want to go all the way on the other side of the timeline. So if you would, tell me where you were born and uh, what your family dynamic was like. Sure. So I was actually adopted. Uh, and interestingly enough, this was in 1955 in the old Cook County Hospital in Chicago. And uh, three weeks apart from former Chicago Fire Commissioner Jose Santiago, who was also born in the same area, uh, both adopted. I was adopted. Uh, and um, then my people who I consider my real parents uh, Joyce and Sam Goldfeder adopted me and brought me back to New York. And uh, so uh, I was born in Chicago, I'm kind of a native New Yorker, and uh, stayed there for uh, all of my childhood. Uh, and uh, as far as the fire aspect of it, that I don't know a time where I wasn't interested in the fire department, always fascinated. But the story goes that uh, we had a guy named Dino uh, who was a Comac Long Island firefighter. And he would come once a year to strip our floors in our basement in our house. So for the younger people, years ago, you used to strip floors and re-wax them. Now you don't have to do any of that stuff. It's all automatic. So uh, I wasn't four years old, maybe. Uh, and uh, Dino would run his waxing machine in our basement which was actually really cool because I was allowed to ride on the machine. Today, you couldn't do it because everybody would be afraid of getting sued and all that. <laughs> right? So I followed him out to his car one day, which was a Woody station wagon. This was probably around 1959. Uh, and in the back of his car, and I can see it like it was yesterday, there was a pair of rubber pull-up boots, a black coat with a silver stripe on it, and a black leather helmet. And I said, what is that? He says, that's my fire gear. He's a firefighter. I said, well, you, you, you do homework and, and stripping floors is, but I'm also a volunteer firefighter. And so that's the first re memory I have uh, of any real intimate interest, but I've really had little to no interest in anything else uh, as I've grown up. You want me to keep going? Uh, yeah, please. Okay. So I, uh, I basically, uh, you know, grew up and uh, barely got through school because all I was interested in is whenever the fire whistle went off. Uh, and it was pretty much an obsession all the way through high school. When I went to high school, 
uh, and I was uh, I, I was pulled out of public school because I wasn't paying attention. Uh, and again, it was pretty much all the fire stuff. That's really all I cared about. Uh, so I was sent to a uh, private school in New Jersey for children that didn't pay attention in public school. And uh, as soon as I got there, the fire whistle went off and I discovered right next to the school was a fire coming. So I immediately started running down there. But actually, I was able to do a little bit better because my school teachers actually allowed me in high school to go out and respond on EMS calls and things like that. So that was pretty cool. Graduated high school in 1974, uh, a year later than I should have, and uh, went to college down in Florida where I lived in a firehouse in Broward County uh, and uh, went to school down there. Then one of my dreams was to move back to New York, Long Island. Uh, and basically I grew up, I grew up in the uh, great neck Manhasset area. And my goal was to move back and get back on, or uh, <clears throat> to become involved in my fire department, which was the Manhasset Lakeville fire department in Long Island. And, and I did, I did that. Uh, just take a quick drink. I uh, did that and, and, uh, joined up there, uh, when I was in school, by the way, in Florida, lived in the firehouse, was very active in the fire department there, and then went to college, but then wanted to go back in, into Long Island and New York metropolitan area and get on the Manhattan Lake Fire Department, which I did. Uh, I also, at the same time, applied for and was selected to work for ISO, which is the Insurance Services Office, which are the folks that set the fire protection rating. So I really fell into it wonderfully. Uh, and, uh, so I was a very active member of that fire department. And during that period of time, we were probably doing 75, 80 working fires a year, which is a pretty good load. And I made most of them. So I was, I was getting a lot of, uh, uh, good work under my belt and a lot of good time. And I promoted up there and became a Lieutenant and wanted to do more, uh, applied for the New York city fire department, could not get through the whole process because back then they didn't have LASIK surgery. And my eyes sucked. So I started thinking, well, what can I do? So I applied around the country and I was hired uh, in, uh, oh goodness, 82 to go down to Florida, Manatee County, Florida. And I put in their county's first 911 system. Uh, so basically, uh, Monday through Friday, I uh, was the county's chief of communications for the 911 fire rescue and EMS dispatch system. Uh, and uh, nights and weekends, I was part-time assistant chief for what then was the Braden River Fire District, which is now the East Manatee Fire District. And I did that for five years and got a silly idea that I wanted to be chief of a bigger organization. So I did. I got hired as the director of fire and rescue services in a place called Loudoun County, Virginia, outside of D.C., and uh, I stayed there for just about nine years, uh, and it was a little bit too big. I felt very distant. Uh, we had uh, about 500 volunteers. I probably had about 1,000 volunteers back then, and about two or three dozen career personnel. And now today, Loudoun County has about 500 volunteers and about 500 career personnel, so it's obviously changed quite a bit. So I came out to Ohio. I got hired as the first and last fire chief of what was called the Mason Deerfield Joint Fire District, uh, 
which was a, a venture between two jurisdictions who didn't get along. And why I say the last fire chief is because one jurisdiction started annexing the other. And like in a divorce, the kids got caught in the middle and the firefighters and the fire department got caught in the middle. So they both split up and became their own fire departments. I went to work for a little while for the city of Mason. And uh, while I was there, we, we, that was basically the second time I built a fire department uh, with the, the help of some amazing people. Uh, and then uh, I had a genetic defect uh, that does not allow me to get along with city managers who don't support the fire department. I have that same so, recessive gene. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we parted ways and uh, I was brought on as battalion chief at the time at the Lovell Sims Fire Department. And uh, about maybe six years later, promoted to deputy chief where I remain at this time. And uh, I'm very happy. Probably the most important part of my life are my grandkids. I'll tell you about my kids. I've got five kids. Two are my stepkids. Here are my natural kids. And uh, my son is a, uh, a career firefighter, lieutenant paramedic in Maryland. Uh, my two daughters are professional school teachers. One is a uh, elementary school teacher and a very popular one because she runs a very tight ship. And the parents love that because they don't want to run tight ships themselves, I guess. And my other daughter, is uh, she has her master's in special education. Both have their master's in special education. And, uh, and, and, and my other daughter, she... Uh, uh, is a expert in the area of autism and special needs. And she's an associate professor at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, and then my two stepsons, uh, they both uh, work in the service industry, doing very well for themselves. So I'm, I'm really blessed, but really the biggest focus are my, my six grandkids. We call them our six pack. And uh, four of them live here. Uh, right in our area, and two of them live in Maryland, and I'm in Maryland about every month to go see my grandbabies there and try and spend some time riding with my son and his crew when I'm there as well. So these days, that's kind of what I do. Um, uh, between the fire department and this, I'm working on finishing two books simultaneously. One is going to be Pass It On 3, and the other is a collection of stories uh, from the nozzle head column that we ran for about 20 years in Fire Rescue Magazine. And I do a lot less teaching than I used to. I'm not interested in traveling as much as I did, uh, but I still do some. I'm getting ready to head out to Fort Lauderdale, as a matter of fact, this weekend uh, to do a program for the Broward County Fire Chiefs on Monday. Uh, and that's it. I mean, that, that's a great snapshot uh, of uh, my life at this point. I'm very involved with the International Fire Chiefs. I'm on the board of directors there, board of directors, National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. I write the seeker list, uh, help maintain firefightercloseclaws.com, and uh, whatever else. But that that's that's a pretty good thumbnail right there. Beautiful. And what I'm seeing from there is obviously a huge, huge love for the profession. But as you said towards the end, and I feel the same way myself, is the only thing that comes ahead of the job is your family. And obviously, you hold them extremely highly as well. Yeah, I mean, if you've, if you've spent more than a minute with me and I haven't talked to you about my grandkids, I've had a stroke or something. That's my priority. <laughs> All right. Well, then you mentioned the secret list. So that's the thing I'd, I'd love to talk about first and you know, expand on that as to 
how we respond to what we read about in these in the, some of these close calls. But where in where in your career did did uh, you know that come across your desk? I know you, you had a version of it that someone else was doing, and then what made you kind of take the reins on your own version of it? Yeah, it's it's kind of a cool story. Um, so my interest in us getting hurt or killed started in the seventies when I was on the Manhasset Lakeville Fire Department, of which I'm still affiliated. I'm very proud of that. Uh, and we had several line of duty deaths in Long Island at the time. Uh, we had two firefighters killed in Bethpage at a swimming pool supply facility. We had some firefighters killed in Valley Stream at a synagogue fire. We had a firefighter killed in Wontaw when the apparatus rear-ended an uh, aerial ladder and that fire officer uh, died a horrible death. And there were many others and some very significant close calls. And what really struck me as a relatively new fireman was how, and I don't mean this to come across the, the wrong way, but this is really what I observed. It was very nonchalant. It was horrible, but up oh, that's part of the job. And I kind of scratched my head and said, yeah, that doesn't make sense. So fast forward, um, I mean, my interest was always there, and I've always taken a very aggressive role in taking care of my people. Uh, and I run a very strict and disciplined fire ground, uh, and that's never changed, and it's only gotten stronger and, and more tight over the years. <clears throat> and I liken it to, if you're going to be a successful put, football coach, you got to have discipline during training, discipline on the field. So I kind of follow that same uh, kind of uh, mantra that you got to have a good game plan. You got to have a good team, good uh, coaches, go assistant, good assistant coaches, good game plan, and, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how I and we, under our chief at Lowell Sims, operate as well. So over time, uh, I, I developed a really good friendship with a fire chief named Jack McElfish. Jack, because uh, chief was chief in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Sandy Springs, Georgia, a couple places, and Jack and I became really good friends. And, oh, I'd say probably, well, maybe every three, four months, I get this Manila envelope in the mail filled with clippings, uh, articles, newspaper, all kinds of fire stuff. And he just, you know, and and if he had pencil shavings on his desk or an old eraser or a dirty coffee cup, he'd throw it in there too. I mean, it was <laughs> it was quite a quite a treat to get the package. But I really thought that was a great way of sharing information. He did with that. He did that with about ten or fifteen people. He'd have his secretarial staff photocopy and make print out and send this, and well before the days of computers. So in uh, 1996, 97, I got my first computer, and I started searching for fires and rescues and all that. And I started sharing that with with friends, much in the same that way Jack was doing. And I sent, uh, you know, an email here and there. And, and you know, I, I picked maybe 15, 20, 30 people who were on my email and say, hey, look at what happened here. Let's see if we can find out about what happened there. Or here's what we had. I had this run yesterday. Uh, and we uh, stretched two lines. We ventilated. It went well. Or maybe we, you know, didn't do so well. And I kind of share that. So over time, my list grew. And this one copied that one. And that one copied this one. And so we were up to a couple of hundreds, hundreds of people wanting to be on this email list. So 
because the email list was getting longer and, and sometimes the amount of people on the list was longer than the message, I discovered that under the old AOL system, if you put parentheses around the names, they would become blind carbon copies. So I would start sending the, these messages out in blind carbon copy. And one day somebody said to me, who's on your list that you're sending this to now because we can't see the names anymore. And I said, ah, oh, it's a secret. And, and I just, just blew that off out of my mouth. And the next time I wrote one out, you know, firefighter uh, struck on the highway, the secret list, that's kind of how that got started. So we grew and grew and grew and grew. And, um, <clears throat> and then we uh, actually, one of my firefighters at the time when I started that uh, worked for AOL. So he was able to get me all kinds of privileges and abilities to send huge emails without anybody stopping them and all that stuff. And then we just got so big and I got off AOL that we uh, contracted with a company that sends it out now. And right around the same time, uh, I was doing a lot of work for a group called Command School. Command School was a group of instructors under the direction of Chief Glenn Usden out of Pennsylvania, where we would go around and, and spend a Friday, Saturday, Sunday doing many command, many fire schools. And myself, uh, Bruno, Carl Holmes, uh, Dennis Rubin, uh, many, many other folks, uh, we would all kind of do this rotation around different parts of the country. Well, Gordon Graham, who I'd known for many years, was part of that. And Gordon and I became much closer and much, you know, become more, you know, better friends at that point. And one day he said, you know, I get your secret list. Why don't you have a website? And I said, well, at the time I was going through divorce, I didn't have a lot of money. I definitely didn't have a lot of time. And he said, well, when you have time, you let us know, or let me know, basically. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll help you fund it. And the long story short is about six months later, he uh, and I spoke again, and we started firefightercloseclalls.com. And we celebrated our 20th year last year. This is our 21st year. Uh, and we're pretty proud of it. We, we've done uh, quite a bit. We accept no advertising. It's sponsored by Gordon and his uh, businesses. Uh, so he pays the bills. And myself and a crew of about a dozen volunteers, uh, some pretty solid, respected chiefs from around the country, uh, keep firefightercloseclalls.com going. Uh, I write every secret list other than about one or two a year if I'm sick or unavailable and then it's it's sent out automatically via email, but I write every one of them. Uh, and uh, I do a little bit of work on the website, but that's mostly due to contributors and the crew that are involved in this that as well. But that's kind of the the story and the history. Uh, we've <clears throat> excuse me, we've enjoyed an amazing amount of success. Uh, and we know that based upon the amount of people that reach out to us every day and tell us, hey, I read this story, I followed that article. Uh, we saw this commentary on the secret list and we tried this or we did that and it certainly made a difference. So it's, it's pretty cool. So between the website and the, uh, the secret list, you know, we, we get out to a whole lot of people. That's kind of the story. Yeah. But I think it's incredible. And I, and for me, I've only got 15 years, well, really 14 years full time. Um, I'm volunteering now very temporarily, but, uh, um, it, there's there's one philosophy in the fire services we we need to learn from as many other people's mistakes and i say mistakes you know things that have, have 
happened on the fire ground. It wasn't anything from from often from a, a lack of skill, but you know the fire ground is organized chaos, um, so that we can prevent others. And I think that we, as a profession, owe it to the 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 world's fire departments when we have, especially a, a near miss, to share that. But having been part of uh, five fire departments now, I'm kind of like you. I've I've been all over the country as well. Um, but in a very, you know, a condensed version, um, I see people that, that put it out there and learn from their mistakes. And I see a lot of brushing these mistakes under the, the carpet. So what's been your observation of, of, uh, the kind of departments that do put it out there for people to learn and have those after action, action reports versus the ones that try and hide their mistakes? So. I think for, first of all, the way, the way we do it is we just keep throwing mud up on the wall and we see what sticks. Uh, we just keep putting it out there, putting it out there. We're very active on Twitter on, uh, you know, some of the other social media stuff. And of course the secret list, which goes to several hundred thousand people. We're very proud of that. And that's around the world. And we track our exposure. We track our openings. We track where it goes. And we know all that. And, Something obviously is a great source of pride and there's no money involved. We, we do this all for free. And, you know, it, it really starts at the top. I think it's the, and that could be at the top of your department or it could be at the top of your crew, the top of your station. But a lot of times, uh, you know, the bosses don't want information shared. They don't want new information coming in. I mean, we certainly learned that from the Charleston fire department. Uh, whereas, there was no conference attendance. There was no outside training. And you got to really look and see what's going on around the corner, not just in your own fire department. But unfortunately, in some places, the leadership does not want that to occur. Now, well, that's probably in often the same leadership that when something goes wrong, they don't want to share that story because they're worried about this or that. I, I'll never forget when uh, there, there was a firefighter killed in Phoenix a number of years ago. And he was, filled, he was killed in an Italian tank explosion. Uh, and it was pretty easy for people to criticize uh, the way the Phoenix Fire Department operated at that fire. They basically took a saw. Uh, there was a reported victim inside this tank. They took the saw uh, to the side of the tank. Sparks, sparks ensued, even though they were blowing a line. Uh, to keep the cool, sparks ensued. There was an explosion in the the tank actually lifts off the ground and, and the firefighter was tragically killed. I'll never forget talking to Chief Brunacini right after that. I saw him at, uh, um, at a conference and I said, you know, uh, you've been so open about what happened here. Uh, you know, what, what, what happened and how it happened and what you did right, what you did wrong. And uh, I said, you know, you hear a lot of buzz from fire chiefs saying you're crazy that all you're doing is feeding the attorneys. And he said, the attorneys are coming to eat anyway. They're going to find what they want. They're going to, we're forced to provide the facts. So why wouldn't we be upfront and open about it up front and share that change how we operate and encourage other departments to consider how they change. And maybe they change a little bit and operate differently. And that way everybody wins. Uh, and, and that always kind of stuck to me. So it really comes down to the leadership. I would say that in, in a great majority of cases, when I reach out to a fire department, especially if I want to do my close calls column, such as in the magazine, <clears throat> I will reach out and almost 
these days, almost every case they're willing to share. So we've really seen a nice uh, change in the leadership, but there's still some places. Or the chief wants to share it and the city attorney says, no way, you know, stuff like that. But when something goes wrong, uh, the attorneys are going to find out anyway. So forget that defense. Uh, The real issue is in coordination with you legal folks and the families involved, share what happened. I don't care if you do it in, in, in fire engineering, firehouse, fire, whatever, fire rescue, whatever. Do it on firefighter close calls, whatever you want. But get the word out so we can learn because we're still not learning. The other aspect to that is the ability to learn. People are so damn busy. And look how long it took you and I to hook up, right? People are so damn busy these days. They don't have time to read all the stuff that's out there. So that's why we've really tried on the secret list is we'll, we'll grab you with our headline. We try to give you a headline that gives you reason to open it up. And then we'll give you a short, sweet to the fact, you know, to short, short, sweet to the point, factual. Here's what happened. Here's a link to the reports. Here's what we can learn from it, blah, blah, blah. And we've had some pretty good success with that. Uh, you do a 15-page article, and certainly there's a place for those. Uh, I'm afraid that you're going to lose the majority of your audience. But if you put some pictures in there, a couple of points, you know, uh, make sure next time you do a 360, here's why. Uh, next time, uh, don't get off the rig when there's power lines down on the street, and here's why. Uh, you know, things like that. Uh, that really resonates, and people grab that. Again, I, I think that uh, it was correct when Dr. Lori uh, Moore spoke at FRI this year, and she gave a talk to to us about the next coming generation, and that they have about an eight to ten second span of attention. Now I don't know how realistic that is because man, that that's that's crazy. But I also would bank whatever Lori says is pretty accurate. So convert that into your day to day business. If you're a chief, if you're a leader, if you're writing something you got about eight seconds to grab these people or they're going to go on and go do something else. So pretty interesting stuff. No, it is. It is. And, and we all know that we remember the mistakes we made. I, I, without naming departments, I remember one of my departments, I was on scene and they were flowing the, the truck and there wasn't anyone actually on you know, in the bucket flowing. They were doing it blind and they almost knocked two firefighters off a three-story roof. Uh, I remember another one yeah. that I, I went to after, but there was a smoke investigation. They were com- super complacent, weren't wearing their gear, talking to the people in, in the, the building. Um, then it, basically there was a, a fire within the chimney. So they looked at the fireplace, no fire, even though the whole house was smoked out. It flashed. By the time we got there, it was fully involved. Another another huge near miss. And those I learned from because I was there or there shortly after. But sadly, other people didn't learn. And when you have seen either pictures or a video or, you know, listen to someone talk about it, it doesn't matter if you're here or in the Philippines. If you go to the similar kind of call, that's going to replay in your mind and just kind of hold the reins for a second and go, wait a, wait a moment, you know, let's put someone up that aerial before we start flowing because this happened in City X. Well, and that's exactly what we try to do is to, to, to share it happened to them. So why would we want it to happen to us? Look at what they went through. And, you know, like you gave an example about your gear and, and cancer. It immediately makes me think of that. And I'm almost at the point, I wouldn't say giving up because I'm not, but I'm at the point where if, you, if you're going to, if, if we're going to, somebody's going to send us pictures or video 
with you running around without a mask on, breathing that shit, there's nothing else I can do for you. At this point, if your leadership, your, your company officers, your chiefs, or yourself are not willing to understand that there's firefighters rotting away at 80 pounds uh, because they got cancer and didn't want to get cancer, and now you have a chance to not get cancer, but yet you're not wearing your mask, you're not wearing your gear, you're not cleaning up after. I don't know what else I can do for you or if anybody else could do for you. We're not going to stop banging the drum, but good Lord, at this stage, that's some nasty shit out there. Why would you want to breathe that stuff? And, and again, you know, even with, with your mask on and everything else, we've got a great chance of, of uh, absorbing some of this stuff. But why would you want to minimize it? Because it's kind of where my head is. Yeah. Now, what do you think the reason is for such a spectrum from, you know, departments that are using clean cap uh, concepts and some are even I see now are going to the European helmet, which, you know, I think is, is another forward step for the fire service. Um, but then, as you were saying, we also have people that we see on video wearing jeans and a T-shirt, <laughs> you know, on a roof holding a, sure. a line. So what do you think is the difference or some of the common denominators between such a diverse group? Well, first of all, let me comment on the European helmet. <laughs> Please. <laughs> you shouldn't have brought it up. Yeah, I know. I'm not a big fan. And here's why. I've spent a lot of time studying this stuff. We do not have a problem with head injuries in this country. That's not our problem. We don't have a lot of firefighters getting head injuries. Uh, and if a wall is coming down on you, the helmet may or may not matter. I, I tend to think it's probably not going to matter. Uh, so if, if it's our last bit of tradition we can hold on to, we feel good about it. And the fact is, firefighters, you know, you can take my boots, you can take my pants, my coat, don't touch my damn helmet, right? That's kind of how that works. Uh, I'm not I'm not buying into the, I mean, you know, if the department wants to go to it, that's great. But if the, if the troops don't want to, uh, I've done a lot of work with NIOSH. I'm a subject matter expert with their program, uh, a lot of work with NFPA, and, and I've done the research, and we don't have a head injury problem. We do have a behavioral problem. We do have a discipline problem. We do have a not wearing our mask when we should problem. We have a problem of freelancing on the fire ground. We have a problem of no discipline on the fire ground. Th those are the issues. Again, the, the, I think the European helmet, what that does, it's a symbol for what may be perceived as a progressive organization. And I, that may or may not be. And that's cool. You know, I'm open to any ideas and check stuff out. I'm just not a fan. I've been wearing a, a, a traditional helmet since, you know, 1973. And we really have no plans to change it. And again, if there was a real reason, like more striping on our coats, which we've done, striping on the back of the rigs, uh, annual physicals, you know, cancer prevention stuff, home run. But the helmet thing, it's a very personal thing to firefighters. And I'm not sure that that's one that some chiefs should pick on. But they, that's up to them. We choose not to, and I'm glad we don't. Um, but as far as the other pr progress organizations are making, and, and you say the, the full range, I think it's a lot of it's culture, but there's cultures within culture. So you can say that, oh, in the Northeast, they do this and it's, it's not good and it's not smart. But yet I'll take you to parts of the Northeast that we're dealing with the cancer issue, that we're dealing with size up, we're dealing with accountability and discipline before any of us were talking about it. So I think it's, it's, you got to be careful when you're generalizing that way. And I don't mean you, I mean any of us. Uh, and, and it really, I, I think maybe this sums it up. I do a lot of work with businesses who are in our business, and I try to get them to understand the culture of the fire service. And I always start off with the, with the saying that if you've seen one fire department, you've only seen one fire department. Because very American, this is very American in our country, 
independence, uniqueness, all that is very, very much the way we do business. May or may not be the best way, but it's the way it is, right? So you can take two towns in America right next door to each other, and one town will have a fully volunteer fire department that is unable to get a truck on the road, uh, and that's the way they operate. You can take a town right next door that has a fully volunteer fire department, but they staff their stations with members doing shifts, and that's the way they choose to operate. And then you can go to the next town over, and you can have a fully career fire department who staffs their stations but does no training. So here's three fire departments. you got a volunteer department that can't get out. you got a volunteer department that staffs their stations and trains when they're on duty. And then you've got a fully career fire department that's fully paid, but they don't do any training or they do. And that's kind of the diversity I'm talking about. It's not a good kind of diversity. The fact is, because we don't really have any uh, laws or required standards, it's each, up to each community how they want to provide fire service. And a lot of it's based on tradition. We've always had an all-volunteer fire department. Well, for the past eight or ten years, your all-volunteer fire department continually fails to get out on their runs 40 or 50 percent of the time. Maybe it's time to change. A lot of volunteer fire departments and career fire departments were formed because of a need in the community. And let me just focus on volunteers for a minute because that's really a key issue I'm, I'm, I'm really hitting on hard lately. Please. You know, volunteer fire departments were formed to provide service to the community at a time where, you know, maybe there was four or five fires a year and, and uh, you know, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker would all come running and all that. Uh, but we failed to change our volunteer fire departments to meet the needs of the community. A lot of times, the reluctance to change in a volunteer fire department is because that will then interfere with the lifestyle or the enjoyment the members get out of serving. I don't want to do duty crews. I don't want to train more than once a month. Well, you know what? We're no longer a rural farming community. We're now a suburban and partially urban community. So we're going to be training more, and you're going to start doing duty crews. We've got to remember why we were formed, and we formed back then to do what was best, what we could afford to do uh, for those people when they had an emergency. But communities have changed, and we have to kind of go back and look at that. Take your community today, and wherever your community is, and if your fire department was formed today, would you do it the same way? And in most cases, of course not. You'd have a different model. Uh, and, and, you know, the public needs to be willing to pay for that. And that's the other issue we're faced with in a lot of areas where we have volunteer fire departments that are literally, you know, living off scraps uh, and the community refuses to pay taxes. Well, and your shit's going to burn down and maybe little Johnny and Janie with it. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if you don't have sprinkler ordinances, you have smoke alarm ordinances and you're relying on a fire department that's woefully underfunded and unstaffed, odds aren't good. It's not, it's not a bet I would take. So, that, that's just kind of an overview of, of my thoughts on change and the need to change and why we change. And why we change is simply because we're in the customer service business. What's the customer want? If we were in the business of making money through this, we would constantly seek and, and determine, you know, what the customer wants. Do they want a Big Mac with sauce? Do they want ketchup on it? Do they want mustard on it? Do they want the bun toasted? I don't know, right? Well, the fire department's the same way. What's needed in the community? And we should do a self-assessment. But then we should also involve our community, the Lions Club, the Rotary Club, this club, that club, to fee give us feedback. And what you, this is what we recommend. This is what it's going to cost, and that's plan A. That's the most expensive. 
then there's a B and there's a C. And then you know what? Then the taxpayers vote and we provide that kind of service. Unfortunately, what happens is we have some very poor areas in our country, areas where the taxpayers don't support a raise, but yet we, the firefighters, continue to operate as if we're a class A operation. And that, for example, instead of four or five firefighters on the rig, we have one or two, but now we're trying to act like we have four or five. And that's where we get ourselves in real trouble, if that makes sense. No, it does. And and I agree 100% with, with your philosophy on the volunteer side. And what I find infuriating living here in Florida with, when I checked the calendar, I think it's 2019, in one of the most affluent countries on the planet where everyone's driving around in, you know, twenty thirty thousand dollars $30,000 cars, and then they have volunteer fire departments. And, you know, when, to me, I, I don't understand why we've got our priorities so reserved, uh, reverse, excuse me, that the safety of our children, whether it's police, fire, and in the education as well with the teachers, why that's so far down and, you know, why it's like pulling teeth to say, hey, you know, when, when God forbid the worst thing happens to your family, do you want that, that one guy driving the ladder truck that has to, you know, respond to his, his station sure. and then go get the ladder on his own? And then he can't put it up because he hasn't even got the manpower to, to, to get it in the right position. Exactly. And that's what we see over and over again. And I don't, it, it kills me that, you know, everyone has an iPhone, everyone has a, a freaking Winnebago or, you know, whatever it is. And yet the most important things in lives that you would give all those possessions for, uh, are, it's only after it happens that people go, oh, yeah, maybe we should, you know, have an active exactly. shooter program. And, now. and actually, it's it's like it's like 9-11, uh, the way people operated a year after, two years after, and now 17, 18 years later. Uh, we operate differently. Now we have changed to some extent, but the public is not at all uh, concerned or as aware as, as, as they were right after 9-11. And it's, it's sort of at a local, at a local level. Uh, if you have a fire in the neighborhood, you might think about it because far as, but because fires are few and far between, uh, we really are on an uphill battle to get people to understand. And sometimes uh, government has to kind of push it. And, and again, I'm not anti-volunteer fire department at all. I'm, I'm anti any fire department that doesn't identify the needs of the community and then react to that. There are some phenomenal volunteer fire departments that are getting their trucks out in 30 seconds to a minute because they're staffing their stations. And that's one of the biggest changes is just understand that blowing a whistle or setting off a pager as a crapshoot to see who shows up is not the way to operate. Setting off a pager, knowing that Billy John, Julie, Mike, Sally, and Harry are around today, and we're committed to be at the station in two minutes, that's a much better way of operating. And maybe even in the future, consider for John, Billy, Harry, Julie, and Sam to be in quarters for uh, 12 hours a week, and maybe we give them a stipend, we give them a meal, whatever. They're willing to volunteer. That way, you're sharing the load. Everybody is having to pull their own weight, but in typical volunteer fire departments, You've got 10% of people doing 90% of the work and everybody collecting the benefits and the public losing. And that's not the way to operate. No. Well, then shifting to the paid, I mean, I'm using quotation marks now, paid depending on the departments. And you've got that one or two person crew. Um, you know, fast forward, go back, excuse me, go back about 10 years. There used to be three people on the rig or four people on the rig. And, you know, oh, we had this big financial crisis that so we had to cut, then they never put those people back. And and the the thing that I don't think the public understands is when that administrator or whatever it is 
that's slashing you know, these budgets and, and making a, a paid back to a volunteer or a four-man crew to a two-man crew, two-person crew, is there's no explanation of the reduction of deliveries of service to the men and women in the community. So, oh, they didn't tell you that the, the fire station next to you is closed down now and it's going to be 10 minutes to get your kid out of the burning building. But the, the, the budgets are cut and, you know, they, these people make themselves look great. Oh, we saved this money. But no one's telling them, oh, by the way, you not only are you not getting a refund on your taxes, that, you know, <laughs> there's also a reduction of service. And I think if people understood the impact of some of these budget cuts that happen to these first responder departments, they would, you know, think twice about voting for it next time. Well, and, and that's exactly right. But what happens is, You'll have it really a lot of times this has to be generated by either the union or the firefighters association, the volunteers, whoever uh, have to get the word out there. Because in, in some areas, if the fire chief starts going to council and telling them these are the problems, the city manager or the mayor then then get into, you know, get locked, they lock horns. Oh, you're yelling fire in a theater, you're inducing panic. It's not that bad. I look out my window, I don't see any smoke. Where's the last bad fire? And we've done pretty well through codes, through prevention, things like that, and reducing fire. But whether you have one or a thousand, you still want it to be handled right. Uh, you have, you know, you want to go into a hospital and there's no doctors there, but you want to wait six minutes for them to get there when you're having chest pains or do you want them to be there? It's a very similar scenario. We have to justify our existence more so these days as well. If you're a career fire department, I just spoke to some friends about this. Uh, in Michigan, there's a bunch of career fire departments in a certain area that do not go on medical calls. How the hell do you not go on a medical call? There's a kid choking across the street in the firehouse, and you don't first respond to assist. And then you go to the taxpayers asking for more money, and they fail their levy. They fail to support you because you're not out there. You're hiding behind the doors. You're sitting around waiting for that occasional fire. And I'm not minimizing that fire. I'm the first one to stand up and say we need 18, 20 people on that first alarm assignment without question. But on the other hand, the days of sitting around playing checkers and waiting for the bell to ring are over. Uh, it's a different world whether you like it or not. No one asked. The world changed. We weren't asked. But we have to make sure we adjust, uh, whether it's public education, uh, whether it's uh, uh, teaching CPR, whether it's doing blood pressure checks at the senior citizen's place, or if it's responding on EMS runs, we better figure out a way to justify it. They're going to continue to find ways to cut us, and we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Yeah, and with the, the resistance to EMS, it's, it, it's kind of laughable. I, I only came on in 2003, so I'm a very new you know, member of, of our profession. But when I went through school, it was you know EMT and then, and then fire here in Florida, um, and I'd still have my generation beating their chests talking about just wanting to do fire. And I'm like, all right, then smart ass. So you, you kick in the door, you do a right hand search, you find the baby, you come out heroically just as a newspaper takes a picture of you, but the baby's not breathing. Now what? You just removed a, a body from one room to another, basically. Without the EMS component, you're not saving a life. So to have that resistance to the EMS means you don't even understand the whole purpose of what we do in the first place which is to save lives not just to put out fire right well, like the nurse who says i only joined to do cpr well there's other parts of nursing as well same with fire i only joined to go to fires well you know what it's not how it works anymore the job has changed 
Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about um, cancer earlier, and I want to talk on that as well. So 9-11 is a perfect example. We had that one incident, we lost all those those lives, and it was horrendous. But now, as we know, we've, we've lost thousands and thousands and thousands more. What is what is your kind of observation of the fire service in the last few decades? And, and what do we need to do better um, from our part with, with the cancer side? Well, <clears throat> the 9-11 cancer is was unavoidable at our level. And so many people and some of them really good friends of ours uh, have rotted away or are, are dying uh, from from the cancer. And, and, you know, government officials lied to us and we should have realized how dangerous it was, but we weren't, we weren't going to realize that. We were in the mission of finding missing people. And so we were really deceived and, and let down by the government. Uh, and, uh, now we're all, you know, these people are paying the price as far as cancer for everyday firefighters. The equation is pretty simple. Number one, you're going to places that are on fire. So there is an inherent risk. There's going to be smoke. There's going to be carcinogens. Not much we can do about the environment because it's the environment we respond to. What we can do is better prepare ourselves by making sure we're fully geared up, we have no exposed skin, that we're using our masks, that when we're done, we're cleaning the gear off, we're washing up, and just using common sense. And, and, and I like the analogy, if you had, if you had an uh, infant with you, would you let the infant breathe that smoke? Well, of course not. Well, then don't you breathe. All right, because and, 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 we're no different. And, and I get the heroics and the responsibilities we have, but we have gear. So wear your gear and do your best because, again, we're still going to be exposed, even with all our gear on. But by wearing the gear, by deconning, by getting physicals, uh, by maintaining certain physical levels, uh, things like that, we can significantly and measurably reduce our chances for getting cancer. The challenge we have with cancer, it's not like a wall falling on you. So especially the young, less trained, poorly led firefighters, uh, you know, I got a little exposure and I'm coughing up some black shit and all that. Well, you know what? Those, those are warning signs, but it doesn't hit them immediately. Uh, you go home, you take a shower in the hot shower, you smell smoke. Whoa, we had a good fire, man. It's still in me. Yeah. That, that stuff's incubating in you and it's just waiting to come out and ruin your life. So that's kind of what we talk about is there's so much we can be doing to minimize the high risk. You know, when race car drivers get out onto the track, they know they're going to a risky environment. Now, it's totally different. They're not saving lives, and property, and all this stuff we do. But they've got systems in place in case something does go wrong to minimize their opportunity to get hurt. That's all I'm talking about is minimize your opportunity. Don't breathe the crap. Wash up. Go for the physical. Blah, blah, blah. All the stuff I just talked about. And, and you know what? Maybe you live long enough to keep going to fires till you're in your 60s or whatever. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. Just do that. take care of yourself. And if you're not going to do it, make sure you have lieutenants, captains, and bosses who make you take care of yourself. Absolutely. And yeah, you, you lose the uh, the infant analogy, and I agree with that completely. Another thing that I try and compare with with the, the smoke side is biohazards. Would you get back in the rig when you're covered in blood? Of course you wouldn't. So why would you do that with soot? Or a hazmat incident. Look what ha- I mean. Be in any firehouse in North America. Set the tones out for a house fire, and get out of the way. 
set the tones out for a hazmat incident, nobody's rushing. Well, we need to rush and get to these emergencies quickly, but we need to act like it's a hazmat and use the gear that you demanded, that you fought for, that you asked for, and use it, right? I mean, if, if they took our gear away and, and, and they took our masks away and our wipes away or whatever else we have, you know, we, we'd surround City Hall and threaten riots and make little voodoo dolls that look like the fire chief and stab them and all that <laughs> other crap, right? But yet, when we have all this stuff, we're not using it. We need to use what we're given. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing more, you know, heart wrenching than seeing a prime event swinging there unused, knowing how how effective yeah, those exactly. are. Yeah. Well, well, the other side of the the coin that I've seen, not only in the physical health but the mental ill health as well, um, is sleep deprivation. And you were talking about, you know, the Northeast people, you know, talking well about them or not well about them. But what is crazy is that most of the Northeast has a 42-hour work week. And and I'm a big fan of the 24-hour shift. I think that as a firefighter, for me personally, by the time it gets to 7, 8 o'clock at night, I'm barely just on top of all my training, working out, you know, reports. So it doesn't make any sense to split shifts up. But to do the 2472, personally, from all the, 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 the like medical professionals that I've had, the leaders in all the military services um, that deal with sleep, that seems to be what should be the industry standard. Now you move to the rest of the country, most of the departments I've worked for, it's the 56-hour work week. So I'm seeing you know, a, a big correlation between sleep deprivation and musculoskeletal injury, mental ill health, but also the cancer side because we have the protecting ourselves from the carcinogen side, but the other side is our own immune system. So with with your again your your very long journey through the fire service what's been your observation of sleep deprivation specifically Well I only started getting tired about 5 years ago um it was never on my radar and then you know when you get into your 60s you just by nature you get a little more tired I need a little more sleep than I used to I can nap now and I never was a napper and, and I don't normally but I appreciate how important sleep is and forget what I say the research tells us it's critical. So there's both the ownmanship. You know, you got to pay a firefighter a wage that when they're off duty, they don't have to work two or three other jobs. So don't complain about sleep deprivation and your firefighters if they're making, you know, $40,000 a year and have to work two other three jobs to, to get by. That That's a problem. Uh, you know, can they live on the wage based upon the community they're in or living in? Uh, and, and, you know, we get into discussions about whether they're living in their means and all that stuff. But it, the bottom line is people know what the average cost is to live. And, and are we paying them that? And sometimes we are. And many times we're not. So that's number one. Secondly, the firefighters themselves have to appreciate and the officers have to appreciate the importance of sleep. Don't tell me you need lots of sleep if you're staying up till three o'clock in the morning playing video games the day before you go to work or when you're on shift. At four o'clock in the morning, I walk through the bunk room and you're playing on your, your machine or something like that. It's got to be sort of a everybody involved scenario. We got to understand that, 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 that the sleep is the fuel in the tank and you have to take personal responsibility. But we also have to create an environment where firefighters can actually work and, and work a job and not have to work two or three other jobs to get by. Now, again, I understand the economics of that. If a firefighter wants three brand new pickup trucks and live in a castle, 
that's a choice they make. But there are also firefighters in areas where the salaries and benefits are so poor that they're forced to work other jobs. Uh, and, and that, you know what, that, that ties into the whole sleep thing as well. Bottom line, we need sleep. It's a very complex problem. Yeah. Yeah. And then the one thing I, a knee jerk I get a lot when I talk about this from, from some people normally in the kind of chief officer positions is, oh, well, let's take more, they'll just take more overtime. Like, well, that means that you're not well, staffing your fire department properly. So I can fix that for you immediately. Right. Fill every seat. There's not hardly any overtime left. Boom. You're welcome. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's a challenging issue. Uh, and it, but you know what? I think it's not just us. It's a societal issue. Society in general today is exhausted. Just ask anybody. <laughs> yeah. You see it uh, with, with, uh, with computers, with uh, smartphones. Our jobs are, are taking a, we're, you know, we're taking our jobs everywhere. Uh, we're constantly working. We're constantly engaged. Uh, and I'm not sure that's such a good thing, but it is the way it is. Yeah, I agree. Now, just just on the other side, so the chronic, you know, chronic effect of sleep deprivation is is what we we're talking about before. But the acute effect is something that strikes me, especially with what you know you've really immersed yourself in for for you know a couple of decades now, which is twenty four hours without sleep. And again, this is not saying we shouldn't be running twenty four hours. We are running twenty four hours. I've always worked in busy urban departments, and you know, a twenty four hour shift is just that the occasional. You know, shut eye, but basically you're going to be running. So that's why I think the recovery in between is the answer. But 24 hours without sleep is the equivalent of about 0.1 blood alcohol as per all the, the sleep experts. So you can imagine what 48 hours is like. So then when I started learning this, which is only about five years ago, I came across this kind of science. I look back then at some of the, the, the close calls and then God forbid the line of duty deaths. And it started making me question those those you know intersection wrecks the fatal wrecks the the you know, the the getting lost in 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 a search you know the falling from the roofs or the or the aerials how many of these were possibly attributed to sleep deprivation as well as you know the other areas that they just weren't as aware as they should have been is that something that that you've observed yourself that might be a potential um uh influence as well to some of these near misses and deaths so my partner, Gordon Graham, for, with Firefighter Close Calls and Lexapol, uh, he's a huge advocate for this issue. Uh, and him and I almost purposely look, anytime we see an ambulance wreck, an apparatus wreck, even police officer, anytime after midnight, but primarily from 3 to 7 a.m., we're almost always right when we look and see the hours the person worked prior. It's a huge issue, and you're, you're, you're dead on with this. Uh, as far as um, the the impact it has. Now, one thing you mentioned earlier is the uh, ability for your body to recover and how sleep deprivation drops your immune system. That's a big point you made and an important point. Uh, and, and again, try to get people to understand it. But yeah, you hire employees, you allow them to work 48 hours or we're 96 hours straight. Hell, there's some places in this country where there's no limit. You can work as long as you want. And some of them can be two or three states. Uh, they'll work four or five uh, days in a row at their fire department. And then they get two weeks off. I mean, the two weeks off is great. But if you're busy for four or five days, are you kidding me? I mean, that's way unfair. And I know there's people who would argue, hey, that gives, gives them a solid income. It gives them time away with their family. But we've got to look at the old, uh, the holistic uh, issue long term. 
uh, the ability to be awake at three in the morning, like you said, it's a big deal. Absolutely. Well, that also again ties into the the mental ill health that we're seeing, and 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 these these sleep experts and a lot of the psychologists and psychiatrists and even like the you know the special forces people are like yeah we use sleep to torture people to try and get them to quit in our selection processes. Um, but you know, so we've got this chronically sleep sleep deprived group. I think that as a group of men and women, we are inherently very resilient physically and mentally. However, we're seeing this horrendous crisis where almost every day we're losing a man or a woman, either, you know, in, 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 uh, the fire service or in law enforcement and then the associated professions as well. So the same kind of question, what have you observed through your career as far as the mental health issues? So that's <clears throat> such an important subject. And, uh, I guess I'll share this story to start with. So I've been to as many bad calls as anybody else. Uh, when I was working in Florida, I went to an inordinate amount of child drownings, which really impacted me. Uh, and I took action and, and did some stuff uh, in our region where we were able to cut the child drownings by 50% through an aggressive public education program and stuff. But how did it impact me? I don't know. Uh, I don't think it impacts me badly. Here's an example. So probably, yeah, I'm guessing this is maybe eight or 10 years ago. Uh, I responded on a dwelling fire in our neighboring jurisdiction. Excuse me. And it turned out the father had stabbed uh, several of his children and his wife uh, and then set the house on fire. So I arrived second due chief and did what we normally do at a fire. Uh, and suddenly the crews are saying we're finding victims and they're bringing out one and they're bringing out a second and they're bringing out a third and they're bringing out, and these little kids with big steak knives and cleavers in their chest. It was, you know, a pretty bad scene, like out of a horror movie. Well, after the run was over, uh, we did the critiques and what have you. Uh, and a couple months later, a couple of the people on that scene were in uh, long-term leave uh, lost their jobs. I'm sorry, didn't lose them. Uh, resigned or retired or were, were put on permanent disability because of what they saw. And from that, uh, among many, many hundreds of other runs, thousands of other runs I've been on, I've kind of come up with this conclusion. Let's say you and I uh, and some friends go out to a movie. And during the movie, there's a really funny scene. And you and I are just laughing like it's out of control. But the others with us are looking at us like we're crazy. It doesn't mean we're right that it's funny. And it doesn't mean that they're wrong because they're not laughing. It means that we're different. Let's say after the movie, we go to dinner. And I order steak and you order fish. And I practically want to leave the table. I can't stand fish. I don't know why I can't stand fish, but I don't doesn't make you right or me wrong. It makes us different. And that's what I spend a lot of time and what we need to get primarily company officers and peers to understand that it's not weak, it's not strong, it's different. When you see an auto accident involving something that bothers you, it doesn't mean you're weak and it doesn't bother me. It doesn't mean I'm strong. It means I'm different. And that's the whole issue to me. And I don't want to simplify Freud or any of these other greats who've been studying uh, 
uh, our mental capabilities or our abilities. But to me, it almost is that simple that as soon as we as officers, company officers and peers understand that because Joe is over there crying because a kid got run over, well, maybe that's because Joe's thinking about his own kid. It doesn't make Joe weak. It makes him different. And different isn't bad. So that's kind of my very quick summary of how we've got to get people to understand that when people are reacting to bad things, even though it doesn't bother you, does not mean you do not have a responsibility to reach out to the professionals, to your EAP, to your, I mean, uh, some fire departments now in the country using something called Cortico. It's an app that actually walks you through how you're feeling, how you're doing, what you should do. It preloads therapists all through your fire departments. Really actually very, very cool. It's one of the best innovations I've seen in years. Whatever resources your fire department has provided you, make sure you use that, either you and helping someone else or using it to help yourself. But it's not weak. It's not strong. It's just different. As different as our skin color, as our look, as our mustaches, as our nose, as our ears, it's nothing we can control. It's just that we're different. Now, can we plan for the bad events? Of course. But we can also have systems in place so we all get the appropriate support needed when we deal with the bad stuff. So, Absolutely. You well, well, you mentioned Cortigo. I had the founder, Dr. David Black, on the show probably about a year ago now. That's a home run, man. I just discovered that recently. I was like, whoa, this is, this is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what you're saying about different though, now I'm three years into to this podcast. And, you know, when I first entered, I was you know, a blank canvas and kind of really fumbling my way through and learning. But what really struck me was how many of the people that I had um, who had been through crisis come out the other side, you know, found that post-traumatic growth, most of them, but how much horrendous abuse there was in so many of our professions childhoods and that's something that we never really think about but i mean from from actual physical abuse to being raised amongst alcoholism and and drug abuse and you know all these other things so just because like you're saying that person's responding to that one event that might be the straw that breaks the camel's back from a lifetime of filling that bucket with with trauma and it just so happens that mrs jones you know 60 year old cardiac arrest was the straw that broke the camel's back and i think that's something for us to really look at is it's, it's not just these acute events like the pulse nightclub shooting on 9 11 but it's thinking about the cumulative thing and, and where was that person even when they walked through the door of their very first day at a first responder profession we all got stuff and we all got seeds that are planted. Some we can control, some we can't. So again, that's what makes us different. So we, the leadership at fire departments have an obligation to provide resources or tools or systems. So our members have somewhere to go when they're having that bad day, or if they're somebody else knows they're having it and says, Hey, we need to do this for you right now. Yeah. Well, so the one of the best things that have come out of this this mental health you know issue that we've seen is the formation of these peer support groups. You have got a great perspective because you were in the fire service you know, in the seventies, so you, you've literally got decades and decades to pull from. 
we mentioned the smartphones. We, I think the the individual dorms, as far as sleep deprivation, are a great innovation in in fire stations. But they have a tendency to draw people away from the communal spaces too. So, what has been your observation of the firehouse table and that sense of community? Um, the, the how that's a healing effect and have being able to offload trauma, you know, stories. Um, and, and how that's changed with, with the way that technology has kind of divided us in some respect. So I'm glad we have individual dorm rooms because for too many years between the snores and the ones with other bodily function problems, <laughs> we lost a lot of sleep. So really a bad meal is what led to sleep deprivation years ago because we had to listen to that crap. But anyway, <laughs> on a more serious note, um, I do like the separated dorm rooms, uh, and I think with the uh, 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 the addition of women in the last 20, 30 years, we have no, it's just safer, and everybody wants privacy, and that's fine. What I think, though, is it comes down to the company officer to encourage or even say, hey, you know, we're not going to our rooms till 8 o'clock at night. We have our meals together, we eat together, we trade together, and I think it can be managed at that level. Uh, the other side too, is I like a little private space. Sometimes if, uh, middle of the day, I just need to go think I need to make a phone call, whatever, but it should not be used as a place to further separate our troops in a society that is encouraging either intentionally or unintentionally, uh, separation and, and, and privacy over privacy. Uh, I mean, you got people sitting in cubicles and offices next to each other who are texting each other because they don't want to get up and talk to each other. I'm not talking about that kind of behavior. I'm talking about, though, an officer who encourages it. Hey, we eat together, and that's how it works. Welcome to Station 12. Uh, we're glad to have you part of the crew. Here's a couple of our house rules. And these are the things we do and the things we don't do, and this is the way we operate here. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to go as far as keeping the troops together. Um, you know, we, we are a team. We function as a team. But once in a while, a little bit of privacy is, is okay, you know, middle of the night, things like that. But uh, to take your meal and go in your bunk room or to – Spend the day if we're not training, going to your bunk room. Nah, no, nah, that that's that that starts at eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. Otherwise, we function as a team and we are at work as a team all day long. Yeah, because I mean that that seems to be a, a reoccurring theme that the the close crews, often the ones that are busy houses as well, that that cook together, eat together, clean together. They seem to, to to deal with that better as well because the peer support really is just a fancy name for us actually paying attention and making sure the man and woman to your left and to your right are are okay. Yep, absolutely. All right, so then I want to just take on one more topic before we go to some wrap up questions. Um, the the kind of the fitness standards. So going way way back what 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 kind of uh athletic level were you at as you entered the fire service were you a sportsman back then i was never a sportsman i was an athletic trainer i did sports medicine uh i couldn't get out of my own way as a kid but i did enjoy sports and i enjoyed it to the ems aspect and 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 that so i became a trainer almost ended up doing that as a profession i was pretty interested in uh sports medicine uh, but I was fit. I was able to climb. I was able to jump. I was able to lift. Uh, and uh, again, society has changed. We are a bit huskier uh, than we should be. Uh, but, you know, you t- let's just jump back on the subject we talked about before, staying together uh, and staying fit and staying exercising and things like that. I'll tell you a great story. 
So I had a captain who worked for me years ago in Virginia. His name was Danny Quarter. And Danny was one of those very, very unusual, rare officers that people flocked to want to work with, except those that didn't want to work, and then they avoided him like the plague. But if you were looking for the for that really solid leader who was into the job, who you knew you were going to get training with every day and all that kind of stuff, he was the one. Well, he was doing physical fitness well before we were really talking about physical fitness as a fire service. And he had one day a, a crew member or two on his, 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 uh, his, in his engine who weren't really into it. I think maybe they were covering or they filling in or whatever the case may be. So what Danny used to do, because his theory was, I don't really care what you're doing. I just want you moving. I want you to move your arms. I want you to move your legs. And when you start doing that, you then start getting interested in doing other things was his theory. So what he would do is he'd take the engine crew out during the day to one of the subdivisions and he'd have everybody get off the rig. And I always use this as an example for officers who have trouble getting their troops to to want to uh, to uh, do a little exercise and get a little moving on during the daytime. Uh, and he'd get his apparatus there and he'd tell his driver, I want you to drive three miles down the road. If a run comes in, come back and get us. But I want that rig down the road. And he would force everybody to walk, to jog, to crawl, whatever, to that rig. He was setting the example that, hey, we do things together. We're going to exercise together. And you're going to move. You know, I have a theory, and I've always had this theory, and I believe in this, that especially in a career fire department, we're paying you not just to go to calls, not just to be ready, but for a certain type of behavior. We're paying you for certain types of behavior. And it's not really your choice. And, and again, I hate to talk so hard because most firefighters are into it and they get it. Okay. But some aren't. And they got to understand that we're in the business of providing a service and we have an obligation to be ready to provide that service. And part of that is how you behave, your behavior, your philosophies, your attitudes. And so whether you like it or not, if we're going to be doing some fitness training today, and it doesn't have to be any crazy, everybody starts off basic and, you know, we'll work with you and stuff like that, but you're being compensated to behave a certain way. And that means a proper attitude, a respectful attitude to be fit, uh, to be practicing your, your, your craft, to be drilling, to be training. Uh, and I think we forget that sometimes, uh, we're not just paid to sit around. We're paid for the whole 24 hours or whatever it is. And within reason, management has the right to dictate certain things be done. And that's why we negotiate and have contracts and things like that. But there's some areas in the country where they fight against physical fitness or they fight against this, fight against that. Why would you fight against that? You know, I don't know. Maybe it's a local issue, but we have an obligation to be a certain way. These people call 911. They only got one shot at it. And we only have one shot on that run. Why wouldn't we want to do the best we possibly can? Absolutely. Well, I, I personally couldn't agree more. I've I've been members of a, of a fire department where the union has vehemently opposed annual fitness testing, you know, all, all that kind of thing. Um, so one kind of side note to that, then what I have observed in, in the, the departments I've worked for is I had one or a couple actually where they set the bar very, very high. And, and one specifically, they weren't afraid to let any of the probies go in that first year. And normally the attrition was about 25%. But they ended up with incredibly great firefighters, which then became good, you know, engineers, lieutenants, chiefs, all the way up. Um, and then I've had the other end of the spectrum where they had to dig a hole to put the bar. It was so freaking low. 
Um, and that had exactly the same effect, you know, on the, on the opposite scale where anyone could walk through. Therefore, as you went through the ranks, you know, there was a complete disconnect from even the ability to do the job. What is your philosophy as a, as a chief officer as far as that bar when you hire and, 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 um, expecting the men and women that you hired to reach that bar? So a good leader is someone who tells somebody to go to hell and they look forward to the trip. I think that that, that kind of sums it up. In other words, a good leader is not going to make it where it's brutal and hurtful and I hate this and I don't want to do this. Uh, a decent leader is going to explain to you, you know, we, we have a job we have to do here. And if we're so much against fitness, then maybe instead of uh, doing jumping jacks every day or getting on a treadmill, we're going to go out and stretch hose lines for an hour or we're going to throw ladders for an hour, make it direct job related. If that's what you have to do. Again, I don't understand why you wouldn't, especially if you ride an engine and, and, and going on runs and stuff, why you wouldn't want to at least not be out of breath after the second story you're climbing. Right. I mean, you, you got to try and be able to be there for these people, but to, to, to just tie it into then for those who, who are, are fighting it and, having no success tied into training. Uh, we're going to hump hose up three stories today. We're going to throw ladders today. We're going to climb fully geared up. And you know what happens when you do that? And I'm not meaning this. I don't mean this as a punishment or uh, to be negative. I mean, this is the reality of the job. And as a boss, uh, you have an obligation to train your people. But what happens is they'll gear up. They'll put all their equipment on. They'll get to the second story. and They're woefully out of breath. Sometimes what that does is tr- it kind of kind of set off an alarm inside yourself. You know what? Maybe a few less uh, slices of cake tonight and maybe a little walking around the firehouse. Sometimes it's just enough to light that spark where the problem starts to take care of itself. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. I mean, again, for your uh, you know, journey through the fire service, it's a, a very respected opinion. Um, all right. So let's transition to some closing questions so I can let you get back to your family. Um, you mentioned Pass It On number three that you're finishing now. Obviously, you've got Pass It On one and two. Um, and then your Nozzle nozzle Head um, book as well. So I want to make sure that we talk about that. Do you have any anticipated release dates for those? Yeah, FDIC. For both of them, uh, we're wrapping them up, uh, just about done with Pass It On 3. And uh, it won't take me long uh, for uh, the Nozzle Head book because that's simply a compilation of articles that have already been written. We're just going to pull out about 100 of them and, and put in the best of. And that really should be a lot of fun because I tell you, I had a ball writing that column. For years, I had to do it anonymously, which most people were pretty able to figure out who it was. But then, when then when fire engineering bought fire rescue uh they had me disclose myself come out of the closet so to speak. <laughs> and, and and the and the column continued and i had a ball with it uh and uh and very much enjoyed it so there's hundreds of those articles uh that there's a whole generation that have never read those and uh, it's all kind of uh advice column and, and we had a lot of fun with that so that that's gonna that's gonna move on and that'll be available and pass it on three uh, 25% of the contributors are repeat contributors uh, because we believe that they had a lot of a lot more to share. And there were a lot of other people that, that we could have tapped on to, but we try to keep it diverse. And I've got about 60, 75% uh, new writers uh, who are sharing their experiences uh, who five, eight years ago when we first did the first pass it on, 
uh, where, where they are today. It didn't have as many lessons to share. So both will be out at FDIC uh, and then available through Amazon, et cetera. Uh, we're so thankful to all those who have bought the books. Uh, we've raised tens of thousands of dollars for the charities that are earmarked for those books. Uh, and 100% of the funds that are made do go to charities. There's not a penny being made by myself or anybody uh, who, who participated in that book. And the contributors all, I think we have 90-something contributors on this next book coming up of Pass It On 3, again, agree to, to not accept a nickel because we're doing fundraising for the uh, National Fallen Firefighters, the Chief Ray Downey Scholarship, the Firefighter Cancer Support Network. And this year we added the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation, who was a really good friend of mine uh, who died from 9-11 cancer, a very horrible death. Yeah, well, I mean, again, that that, that speaks volumes. And I know you talk about the, um, the, uh, the secret list of the Firefighter Close Calls, that being supported by the one... You know, organizations so that you don't have to bow down to sponsors and then the fact that, that you're doing right. the books for charity. And I think, I think that's something I see a reoccurring thing. You know, there's people that just want to make the world better. A lot of these people have already served Navy SEALs, firefighters, police officers, whoever. And then they're looking around going, what else can I do? And those are the people that I look to for this podcast and look to for, you know, their books and everything else is because I know then it's coming from a good place. It's not some glam writing just to try and sell. You know, copies of your book, and with no nothing from the proceeds doing anything good in the world, other than lining your pockets. Well, that that's you know, and, and to each his own. Uh, there's some wonderful books out there that are profit makers, and that that's up to the individual. Uh, I'm blessed enough, where and fortunate enough, where I would I'm able to say, you know what, that this there's some other stuff we need to be doing here, uh, and and my personal belief is giving back, and uh, that's what we do. Love it. All right. Well, then, on the other side of the coin, then, are there any books that you love to recommend that other people have written? Can be what we talked about today, or something completely different. Oh God, that's a tough. Uh, that's a tough challenge. Well, read "Make Your Bed." That's just a wonderful book. It's called "Make Your Bed," and it's about how you need to start off each day making accomplishments, and then that's a solid book. Uh, and I just got a copy of that to give to my son. But as far as other books. Uh, John Salka's uh, books, Rick Lasky's books, um, books by uh, Jimmy Smith from Philadelphia. Um, I mean, my goodness, I could just, uh, any of Chief Dunn's books. Um, there was a book that it's hard to get. Uh, uh, I think it may be out of print, but it's a fire engineering Penwell book. Uh, and uh, uh, now, see, you're asking me now, and I'm now drawing a blank on what it's called. It was so good, I can't remember. What it was <laughs> um, oh, it's called Playing the Fire Leadership Game. Playing the Fire Leadership Game. Uh, that's a phenomenal book. Uh, let's see. I mean, uh, any of Leo Stapleton's books are filled with stories. Uh, but my gosh, he's got so many stories that, that resonate into lessons learned for us to operate. Uh, I mean, I... I <laughs> There's so many out there, um, but I, I don't know what else to to tell you. I could, I could, you and I could do a podcast on books uh, because there's so many great books out there that 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 people are selling. Um, there's a uh, a couple of websites you can go to to check out uh, fire books. Um, FSP is one up in Massachusetts. They are one that they're my source. 
uh, for books. I always keep an eye on what's new with them. F as in Frank, S as in Sam, P as in Peter. Uh, those are police fire books up in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, Penwell, uh, fire engineering books, rather. Uh, lots of great resources there. And I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody else. But I, you, but I can't think of it right now. So there you go. No, that was that was a huge list, though. So thank you. And again, I think that that speaks volumes that someone like yourself has been on so long is still so passionate about those books, and obviously they they truly do belong on everyone's bookshelf. Then, all right. So then the next question: Is there a, a movie that you love? Moscow on Hudson by Robin Williams. Google it. Watch it. It's about Robin Williams, who was a Russian immigrant who defected to the United States. And it's about his adventure in the United States. And it really helps you gain an appreciation for what we have here, in spite of people, you know, the politics and all the bullshit these days. Uh, it's really a good, refreshing, and recharged movie. Uh, that's absolutely one of my favorites called Moscow on Hudson. By Robin, featuring Robin Williams, you'll love it. I promise. Right, and is so is that one of his serious roles, or is there some comedy in that? There's some comedy in that. No, he, he plays Robin Williams. It's not a comedy. It's maybe a comedy drama, something like that. Okay. Uh, because there are some very serious aspects of it. Uh, it. It gives you a view in the Russian life, and it gives you the view of the American life in his contrast, and why he so badly wanted to defect and live in the United States. Uh, and it's not a rags to riches. He was poor in Russia. And when he came to the United States, he wasn't rich. But what he did gain is is the basis of the lesson. And uh, again, a great, great movie. One of my favorites. Brilliant. And you know, I've never heard of that one before. So I'll be looking that up today. Thank you. Um, same question again, yeah. but a documentary. Are there any documentaries that you love? <sighs> so any of the one, <clears throat> excuse me, any of the ones on 9-11, and maybe I'm just thinking of that, because this past week was uh, the 18th anniversary. Uh, but any of the ones uh, related to 9-11, the History Channel uh, did some amazing documentaries featuring people like Jay Jonas, who were trapped, uh, he's deputy chief in the Bronx, who were trapped. Those are lessons we really need to, uh, I don't know, learn, but absorb and appreciate uh, what other people have gone through. But... Uh, yeah, that, those are some pretty, I think any of those that are related to 9-11, and that's really what just comes to mind uh, right now. Yeah, actually, the, the makers of the 9-11 documentary, the two French brothers, I've been trying to track sure. them down for years, but they <laughs> they made themselves very, very hard to find. But they did another incredible Netflix series on the uh, Paris attacks. Um, so that one day, oh. hopefully, I'll be able to get them on here. I think they'd have an incredible insight to, to that day as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have as much understanding and maybe not even as much appreciation as the impact of what that had initially on that morning. Yeah. Big deal. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. All right, so the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Yeah, has Gordon Graham spoken with you yet? Not yet, no. Yeah, so re re email me just as a reminder, and I'll introduce you to Gordon. We'll get it set up. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. All right, so the very last question before we just make sure everyone knows how to reach out to you. What do you do to decompress when you're not still loving the job? Uh, grandbabies in the beach. 
music. I'm a drummer since fourth grade. Uh, hang out with my grandkids and often my cell phone is left behind whenever we go on vacation. My cell phone is left behind and that's only this year. I, uh, I tried it out. We do, we do two summer vacations. My wife and I, one is with our entire family. We take them to a beach somewhere for a week and uh, the phone stayed in the room the whole time and the world did bend. So things, things are pretty, you know, good perspective and realizing they'll be fine without me. And then uh, when my wife and I, we take another vacation, just her and I, just Terry and I, and uh, same thing. So to decompress, it's, uh, you know, music, grandkids, family, uh, and, you know, movie once in a while, but nothing unusual. I walk every night, but, you know, just, uh, just kind of cut it off. But I like being available and I like always being on call. Uh, and I enjoy that very, very much and, and want to keep doing that as long as I'm physically and mentally able. And uh, so hopefully I'll be able to continue a few more years. Excellent. All right. So then online, how can people find uh, Five Hour Close Calls and the secret list? And then how can they reach out to you personally? Yeah, so it all you can do all that at firefightercloscalls.com. Uh, there's a section there on the left. It's Contact Billy. You can do that there, and you can subscribe to the secret list on that webpage. Uh, pretty much all of it's right there for you. Brilliant. And then you're at uh, the Firefighter Close Calls on social media as well? Yeah, so social media, I think we have a Facebook page. You can reach me uh, on Twitter at uh, Billy Goldfeder is on Twitter. Uh, Instagram is uh, Billy G fire. Uh, and, um, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's probably the easiest way to, to reach out to me. Brilliant. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you so much, firstly, for what you've done for our profession that I adore as well. Um, and, you know, really creating an environment where we can learn from mistakes and hopefully either honor the fallen by learning from, from what happened to them or the, the near misses that we can all learn from, but also for taking the time to, to reach out on this podcast as well. So I really appreciate you doing this. And thanks for what you're doing with this uh, program as well. You're helping get a lot of great information out to a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have it. So thanks for having me.